0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 67 The Han Dynasty Part 1 The first Emperor of all of China, Qin Shi Huang, died in the year 210 BCE. His legacy was as important as any other Chinese figure to date. He had conquered all of the lands of China, those being the ones centered on the two river valleys Yellow and Yangtze, and he had made sweeping reforms of all of those lands so that everybody was following the same imperial rules. The social structure was called legalism and promoted a very centralised rule where farmers were expected to deliver a minimum yield to the state granaries and everybody was expected to do their military service. The best farmers and soldiers were rewarded while those that failed to make the grade may be consigned to a lifetime of slavery. The success of the Qin dynasty and subsequently the Qin Empire of China was down to the strong leadership and governance of Qin Shi Huang who surrounded himself with the right people who administered the empire with strength. People like Meng Tian who was a great commander of people Not only did Meng Tian defend Chinese territories from barbarian Xiongnu tribes of the north, but he would also oversee great building projects such as the construction of the first Great Wall of China. People also like Li Sui, who would act as Qin Shi Huang's prime minister, who would go to great lengths to standardise measurements and writing throughout the empire and reduce the power and identity of the ethnicities, of the empire by melting down weapons and turning them into iconic statues. Despite the strength of the Qin dynasty without its leader, Qin Shi Huang, who survived multiple assassination attempts, the Qin dynasty would not survive and it would be very short lived after its unification of China. Just 15 years later, it was toppled. Qin Shi Huang was succeeded as emperor of Qin China by his son, Qin ar The Prime Minister, Li Sui, recognised that Qin ar certainly did not have the same leadership qualities as his father, and Li Sui knew this and would look to maintain his own level of power within Qin China, alongside the deceased Qin Shi Huang's chief eunuch, a man called Zhao Gao. Now this is the first time that we have spoken of eunuchs in history and I'll briefly explain what they were and why this happened in ancient China. Eunuchs are believed to have existed in many societies dating all the way back to at least 4000 years ago where they are believed to have existed in the Sumerian city of Lagash. A eunuch is often a castrated man but in China the entire male genitals are removed and then the man is allowed to work in personal service to the emperor. The genitals are removed to prevent the man from sexual misdemeanours and from procreating his own dynasty should he have any ambitions of seizing power. Zhao Gao was a chief eunuch of Qin Shi Huang and an important member of his court. The main opponent of the Prime Minister Li Sui and the chief eunuch Zhao Gao were the commander Meng Tian, who supported a different son of Qin Shi Huang, his eldest son, Fu Su. The power was with Li Sui and Zhao Gao, and both Meng Tian and Fu Su were forced to commit suicide, which is how Qin A Shi was able to become the new emperor. The most interesting of all these characters is the chief eunuch Zhao Gao. Despite being a eunuch and supposedly having his ambitions removed in the form of his genitals, Zhao Gao would change the game plan, and we're not entirely sure what happened to cause his next actions. Zhao Gao would first turn on Li Sui, his ally, in ensuring that Qin Ao Shi acceded to the throne. He had him executed, ironically, in a complex manner that Li Sui had himself advocated as a punishment for Qin dynasty subjects. Then he would turn on the new emperor himself in a coup and he would kill Qin Arshi, Shi and then work to install a man, perhaps the son of Fu Su, on the imperial throne. This man's name was Zhu Ying and he was the nephew of Qin Arshi Shi and the grandson of Qin Shi Huang. If Zhao Gao believed that he would be able to influence Zhu Ying, he was wrong. Zhu Ying saw exactly how Zhao Gao operated and did not trust him at all and he managed to arrange to have him killed and that was the end of the eventful story of the eunuch Zhao Gao Zhu Ying was the third Qin Emperor after Qin Shi Huang and Qin Ah Shi and the Qin Empire had descended into a shambles by the time he took control It was a land that had erupted into continuous peasant revolts One of the more rebellious former states of China was the lands of Chu in the south and a particularly strong contingent rose up in western Chu which also presided over the eastern coastal lands at the mouth of the Yangtze River. The Chu state managed to regain its independence from the Qin Empire under the guidance of a military leader called Xiang Yu there was a decisive clash between the Qin and the rebel Chu state in 207 BCE at the Battle of Julu, with yet more stories of defeated soldiers surrendering before being buried alive in their hundreds of thousands. Chu victory over the Qin was a crushing defeat which signalled the steep decline of the Qin Empire. Qiang Yu would then have ambitions of marching on the Qin capital city, Xiangyang. And by the time Qiang Yu reached Xiangyang, he discovered that another rebel had got there first. The other rebel's name was Liu Bang. Despite the fact that Emperor Zhu Ying had recognized the danger of the eunuch Zhao Gao and had him executed, Zhu Ying Believed that it was much more sensible to renounce imperial hegemony of China and declare himself simply as the King of Qin. When Liu Bang arrived in Xianyang, the Emperor Zhu Ying surrendered to him, effectively ending the Qin dynasty. Zhu Ying's period of leadership had only lasted for 46 days. Xiang Yu from the Kingdom of Western Chu was sorely disappointed that Liu Bang from the Kingdom of Han had marched on Yang before him. Xiang Yu would embark on a path of destruction throughout the Qin heartlands and would march on the city of Xian Yang and force the fallen Emperor Zhu Ying to commit suicide after he had been spared by Liu Bang. Xiang Yu officially partitioned the Qin empire into eighteen kingdoms and Liu Bang was not particularly happy with his share. Civil war would break out in Chinese lands as a result with several local leaders choosing to show their teeth. Clearly the two more powerful entities were Xiang Yu of Western Chu and Liu Bang of Han and in time many local leaders would choose one of these two sides. Very generally speaking, the forces of Xiang Yu were more dangerous than those of Liu Bang, but logistically Xiang Yu didn't seem to be as adept and often stretched his supply lines. With Xiang Yu unable to eliminate Liu Bang, Liu Bang proposed a peace treaty, but this may have been an underhanded tactic. Xiang Yu's Chu army were exhausted and hungry and were itching for an end to civil war. When Xiang Yu relaxed his offensive in readiness for negotiation, Liu Bang's allies started to terrorise Chu battalions. The most effective ally was a man called Han Qin, who had been appointed as the King of Qi by Liu Bang. He would attempt to entrap Xiang Yu with his remaining troops at a place called Gaixia, and kidnapped Xiang Yu's concubine Yuji. Xiang Yu attempted to flee the entrapment and Liu Bang would send troops to pursue him and at some point Xiang Yu realised the game was up and chose to commit suicide. Liu Bang would take the severed head of Xiang Yu and parade it while declaring himself the new Emperor of China. With Liu Bang originating from the Kingdom of Han, this would signal the beginning of a new Han Dynasty of China from the year 202 BCE. Han Xin, the King of Qi, would be rewarded with more lands for his part in the success. The Han Dynasty The Qin dynasty ruled China for just 15 years, but the incoming Han dynasty would last a lot longer than that. The failure of the Qin dynasty made it very clear that reforms would need to take place in order for the new dynasty to survive, so Liu Bang would set about doing just that. Certain aspects of Qin infrastructure had brought the kind of unity in administration that was a positive aspect of keeping the large empire intact and Liu Bang would preserve those things, such as the local governorship that had replaced the feudal style of land ownership. He would also allow some of the kingdoms that had been created after the collapse of the Qin dynasty to retain a lesser degree of autonomy. Liu Bang would also shy away from legalism in favour of Confucianism, The basic principle difference between the two being that legalism proposed a strict set of laws with a very cynical view of the population, suggesting that human nature itself was self-centred and self-serving. And Confucianism, by comparison, doesn't have such a cynical outlook and benevolently allows humans more freedom to choose a way of life that is supportive of their communities. As with the Qin dynasty, the Han dynasty had a very well-defined governance and individual ministers responsible for different departments such as justice or agriculture for example. So Liu Bang kept all that he believed was good about Qin administration and changed all that he believed was detrimental. While the people of China had been going through civil unrest and rebuilding an imperial state under the Han, the Xiongnu, who were the semi-nomadic tribes of the steppe grasslands to the north of China, consolidated their own unions and strength. The Xiongnu had already become aware of the threat of the Chinese when Qin Shi Huang had shown aggression towards them and constructed the First Great Wall to defend Chinese lands from Xiongnu raids. The Xiongnu were certainly agricultural and were great craftsmen and great warriors, so they were quite an advanced society in their own right, conquering neighbouring territories. Their ethnicity has always been strongly debated as eastern steppe cultures from this era are described as proto-Turkic or proto-Mongolic. It is quite possible that there were elements of both ethnicities among them. The Xiongnu were a very real and imposing threat to Liu Bang's Han China initially and Liu Bang would campaign against the Xiongnu. but the Xiongnu were being led by a strong leader in a man called Mo Du Chanyu. Liu Bang was caught up in a siege in the year 200 BCE at the Battle of Beidong and had come to terms with Mo Du Chanyu just to break out. The Han would agree to pay regular tributes to the Xiongnu, with there even being an arrangement of marriage alliances where a Han princess would be given for marriage to the Xiongnu royal family, for example. Empress Liu Chinese emperors could often be given sovereign names and posthumous names, and Liu Bang was also known to history as Emperor Gaozu. It's not too dissimilar to us having two different names for the Roman statesman Octavian who became Emperor Augustus of the Roman Empire. Liu Bang was married to a woman called Lu Qi from all the way back to the Qin Dynasty years of China and they certainly had two children together. Liu Bang was around 60 years of age when he was struck by an arrow on the battlefield and the wound caused significant problems for him. He became very ill and it seems that he may have been bedridden while one of his eunuchs kept somewhat of a bedside vigil while he attempted to recover. His wife, Lu Ji, searched for the best physician in the land to try and save him. But it was all in vain as in the year 195 BCE, Liu Bang succumbed to his injury and passed away. Lu Ji became the Empress Dowager on her husband's death, which is an official title which is generally given to an emperor's widow. Liu Bang was succeeded as emperor by his son who became Emperor Hui, aged just 15 years old, but it would become clear that he would be heavily influenced by his mother, the Empress Dowager Lu Ji. Lu Ji has gained a reputation for being a heartless and cruel woman but there is a counter-argument to say that she was clear-minded and strong-willed. Her son, the Emperor Hui, is described as kind and generous but there's also a case to be made for describing him as a weak ruler with personal vices. Lu Ji, acting as a regent, continued some competent diplomatic relations with the Xiongnu. The Emperor Hui would be married and have children as a teenager but he was only around 22 years of age when he actually died of a mysterious illness. He could have genuinely become ill or we could suspect that his mother felt her power being threatened by his majority and so she pushed him into the background. He was succeeded as emperor by his son, Emperor Qian Xiao who was just around 5 years of age and his grandmother, Lu Chi, also known to history as Empress Lu, continued ruling as his regent. Emperor Chen Shao may have been born to a concubine of his father, the previous emperor, and it is said that his grandmother, Empress Lu, arranged for the execution of this concubine. Chen Shao commented that when he found out who was responsible for the death of his mother, that he would take vengeance. So Empress Lu arranged to have him deposed and executed. He may have still been younger than 10 years of age when he died. Tian Shao was succeeded by his brother, obviously still a minor, his name Ho Shao. So therefore his grandmother, Empress Lu, continued to actually rule over the Han dynasty. Throughout this time she had installed members of her own Lu clan into positions of prominence such as the Imperial Guard and so there was a rising danger that the Lu clan would become powerful enough to take complete control of Han China by force and others were beginning to recognise the danger. In the year 180 BCE Empress Lu died of an illness She was around 60 years old and her astonishing rule of China had finally come to an end 15 years after the death of her husband Liu Bang. Upon her death, many political opponents of the Liu clan saw an opportunity to change the balance of power and so many of the Liu that had held prominent positions of power were removed from their positions and slaughtered. It was the massacre of a clan intended to prevent any kind of repercussions and it worked, putting an end to a period in history called the Lu Clan Disturbance. Restabilizing. The Lu Clan had been successfully dealt with and the imperial throne passed to Emperor Wen, who was another son of the first Han Emperor Lu Bang. The Han Dynasty was attempting to reset itself after almost being destroyed from within. It was probably just as well, because China could ill afford to get into a civil conflict when their neighbours to the north, the Xiongnu, Yu, were becoming ever more powerful under the leadership of Mao Du Chang Yu. When Mao Du died in 174 BCE, the rule of the Xiongnu passed to his son who ruled as Laoshang Chang Yu. Changyu was actually a name that referred to a supreme ruler, so it wasn't a family or clan name. Laoshang Changyu would continue his father's aggressive attitudes by subjugating local tribes and consuming them into the Xiongnu Empire. The lands of Han China were not off-limits. It would be down to Emperor Wen to re-strengthen the cultural identity of Han China and rule responsibly, casting aside self-interest, and he did that to good effect. The economy grew stronger as he managed it with care and was open-minded to suggestion from his senior advisors. Taxation became fairer on the peasant class. The threat of the Xiongnu under Lao-Shang-Chan-Yu was a very real one. The Han Dynasty had established their capital city at a place called Chang'an, which is one of the oldest cities in China and is the modern city of Xi'an. Laoshang Yu would launch military raids on Han China and would come dangerously close to the city of Chang'an, but the strength of Han China under Emperor Wen was able to resist. Lao Chan Yu would also continue the work done by his father by pushing the Yuezhi tribes westwards towards the Kazakh steppe. And you can find out more about this particular migration in episode 61 on the Kushan Empire. Chang Yu died in 161 BCE and was succeeded as Yu of the Tiongnu Empire by his son Junchen. Emperor Wen of Han China would have to continue to placate the Xiongnu with diplomatic gestures such as tributes and marriage alliances. Emperor Wen would be succeeded by his son, Emperor Jing, in 157 BCE. The relationship between the Xiongnu and Han China remained complex with an official peace interspersed with raids. In 154 BCE, Emperor Jing faced a rebellion by several powerful regional princes as they saw their own power being controlled by the central state more than their liking. Emperor Jing was able to resist the rebellion which lasted for around three months, but it was quite intense and it was an unwelcome distraction from the Xiongnu raids. Emperor Wu. Emperor Wu succeeded his father Emperor Jing in the year 141 BCE and things would change significantly during his reign. Emperor Wu was tired of sitting by as Han China took a very passive and diplomatic approach to its Xiongnu adversaries to the north and decided that a more aggressive stance was needed in order to send a clear message to the Xiongnu that Han China was not willing to be subject to their threats and demands any longer. The Tiongnu had a difficult relationship with their step neighbors to the west, called the yueji who were being pushed further westwards by the expansions of the Tiongnu. Emperor Wu saw an opportunity to make a military pact with the yueji against the Tiongnu, and so he sent one of his trusted military officers, to discuss a relationship and his name was Jiang Qian. Zhang Qian was captured while attempting to cross the territory of the Cheongnu to reach the Yueqi, but they spared his life despite imprisoning him for many years. This did nothing to aid the Han Chinese cause but Zhang Qian's story is a significant one and one that we will talk of again. Emperor Wu would appeal to his more influential subjects in order to rally them to his cause against the Tiongnu by telling them that the power of the Tiongnu was causing financial hardship to Han China and that conflict was necessary. So in 133 BCE, Emperor Wu would plan to ambush the Nu led by Junchen Chanyu at the Battle of Ma Yi, but the plan failed the Tiongnu would quickly realise Emperor Wu's aggressive intentions and realise that they were now officially at war. Emperor Wu understood what Qin Shi Huang of Qin China and Mao Dung Chanyu of the Tiongnu had understood in the past and that is that by expanding your territory well you can add wealth and power to your empire. So Emperor Wu would stretch Han Chinese territory southwards to the South China Sea coast and the northern lands of the modern country of Vietnam. He would also stretch his territory to the brink of the Korean Peninsula. This would aid Emperor Wu in succeeding in campaigns against the Xiongnu and taking territories north of the Yellow River around the Gobi Desert and westwards into the strategically important Hexi Corridor which is a gateway to the deeper lands of Inner Asia. Finally, Han China was turning the balance of power in their direction. In terms of how Emperor Wu governed Han China, he would promote Confucianism as the state philosophy and set up academies that would train up Confucian scholars that could be given political positions. Although aspects of the legalist system of the Qin dynasty survived and remained a foundation of the Han dynasty, legalism as a state philosophy was now finished and Confucianism dominated Chinese history. Although aspects of legalism have survived also. So all of these early philosophies of China, Confucianism, Taoism and legalism are underpinning influences on Chinese societies throughout Chinese history. Scholars in Han China would face a final civil service examination to assess their suitability for high office, and this appeared to be a positive step. Now, you will recall that at the start of the story of Emperor Wu's tensions with the Xiongnu, that they captured the Han envoy called Zhang Qian, and that he was incarcerated for many years. Somehow he was able to escape this imprisonment and dutifully did visit the Yueqi, an enemy of the Tiongnu, to seek the military alliance that was his mission originally to achieve. But he was too late though. The Yueqi had settled lands in and around the modern country of Tajikistan and had no necessity to strike up a military alliance as tensions between them and the Tiongnu had died down. Zhang Tian decided to remain in Yuezhi territory before returning back to Han China in 125 BCE without an alliance but with plenty of information about foreign lands and exotic goods unknown to the Chinese. Zhang Tian had seen and heard enough to believe in the value of a second mission to the lands of the West. This time it would be a reconnaissance mission. When Zhang Qian returned again he would bring a wealth of information about the complex societies of the West such as the Greco-Bactrians, the Parthians and the Seleucids. The significance of this being that they were learning of some very permanent imperial societies that were equivalent to Han China and may have just been the stuff of fantasy to the minds of the Han Chinese previously the exotic plants foods and produce of these lands would be very attractive to the han chinese in the same way that their own produce would have been attractively exotic to the eurasian and south asian societies so a merchant network along a trade route suddenly became very busy thanks to this new knowledge And this would be famously referred to as the Silk Road due to the fact that silk itself was the most popular demand of the ever-expanding Romans who were now having an influence over the Asiatic lands of the Mediterranean Sea for the first time. We will explore the Silk Road phenomenon in greater detail in a few episodes' time, but needless to say that these new relationships were creating new mercantile interaction that had been hopelessly suppressed by the Qin dynasty in the previous century. It was only helping the Han dynasty to acquire more wealth, meaning that the Xiongnu were now reduced to second place in their ongoing conflicts. By the final decade of the 2nd century BCE, Han China had reached the apogee of its expansion and success, casting a great shadow over its neighbours thanks to the enterprising and decisive behaviour of its great Emperor Wu of Han, often referred to by the name Wu Di, where the suffix Di is the Chinese word for Emperor. So if this was the peak of Han expansion and dominance, then next week it would make sense for us to find out how Han China lost this position. So that concludes the first part of our look at the Han dynasty of China, the one that uh, replaced the Qin dynasty, the short-lived Qin dynasty. And uh, we really see how Han China under the direction of emperor wu uh, became um as big a force as ever and um please do forgive me for any of my chinese pronunciations i'm not um i'm not a chinese speaker and i i have very little knowledge of the chinese language so i've just had to sort of try and do my best so i hope you can forgive me and and uh, sort of afford me a bit of a bit of, uh, of licence with it um, certainly it's really just an introduction um, to Chinese history uh, rather than uh, being an authority on it. If you want to sort of explore um, Chinese history from um, an expert, um, you could do far worse than uh, Laszlo Montgomery's uh, Chinese history podcast. so um, So that one uh, is called um, the China History podcast just to get it correct. And uh, and Leslo has certainly got much more of a, a connection to Chinese culture and language than than I have. So you'll be able to sort of hear hear the uh, the names pronounced um, more accurately. And of course, it's um, one of the things that I think it can be more tricky for. Uh, let's say non-Chinese or, or even Westernized uh, cultures or, or people um, is the similarity of all the names of Chinese uh, of Chinese towns and people that kind of thing. So um, sometimes you have to listen really carefully, I think, to the information to get the most out of it. But then, nonetheless, these stories are wonderful and they're they're absolute they're an absolute joy to read about and write about. So um, it's. Um, it's great uh, it's great history and great to explore how all the, uh, the great aspects of China came to be what they are today, these things such as the Terracotta Army and the Great Wall. So um, a real pleasure to explore this era in history. Now each week we always let you know that you can support the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast and you want me uh, to keep it going, you want to help me to keep it going... Um, you can um, sign up to make monthly contributions and you can do that by visiting the history of the world podcast website so um, that is the history of the world podcast.com. and um, just simply click on the patreon link and you can sign up to make a monthly donation when you do so uh, you become uh, a part of the lifelong uh, membership of the history of the world podcast. Uh, com's illuminati so you become a member of that so you're instantly recognized as someone who is a fundamental part of the podcast and the success of the podcast so we're always grateful there are rewards that we give out to our long-term patrons and our, and our um our high rolling patrons let's say so um go and investigate what we're willing to do for you so um you can sign up and um We have two new members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati this week. We've got uh, Nick Kabilafkas and Priyank Sharma, who are now um, helping the podcast to continue and to prosper. So thank you so much to you both and uh, welcome along to the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. Now a few of you have written in this week, so we're going to try and dash through those uh, messages now. And uh, firstly, uh, Jan Sundvall has written in and put, uh, Dear Chris, thank you for an interesting podcast. I'm writing to you from Sweden and have been scanning through the history books since I learned to read in the mid-60s. I like the structure of it because it it gives both a very good overview of world history and has thematic parts, i.e. the Roman Empire. This gives the listener a better understanding of why things developed. Your dialect is easy to understand your voice is clear. I wish you will have the stamina to continue giving us... Interesting episodes, uh, also interesting future. Best regards, Jan. Thank you so much, Jan. Very kind of you. Uh, Zachary Foyce has has written in and put, Hi, I love the podcast and I listen to it at work. I had to stop listening because I can't download it anymore. There is no internet at work, so I used to download episodes and listen to them while I was working. Is there somewhere that I can download them from? I found you with Nick Barksdale's YouTube channel, the famous... Bronze Age Collapse episode and I'm in France uh, oh so you're probably Zachary Foy then aren't you um, rather than so sorry mispronounced your name there um, and um, Zachary uh, yes I think I, I sent you a link there if, if anyone is interested in um, alternative uh, ways that you can listen to the podcast alternative platforms then just go to the listen section at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website um, we've got Daniel Drake's written in and put Chris. I'm starting to catch up I'm on volume three, episode 56, about the Scythians. I found this photo on the Step Nomad page on Facebook. I had to cut it into different screenshots. The other photos are of two of our Akhau Techie horses. The shape and coloration hasn't changed in thousands of years. Historically they are tribal horses and even now they crave human interaction. They want to be part of the family. These are a critically endangered breed with only about 3,000 plus individuals in the world. We had a colt last year, a full brother to the bay horse. It was only one of four horses to be registered last year in all North America. Really enjoying the podcast. I'm not sure what I'll do when I catch up and have to wait a week between you episodes thanks for what you do daniel drake tennessee usa um thanks uh thanks very much that that, that is interesting to i mean the horses are such a fundamental part of um are the origins of um the the nucleus of indo-european languages and it? like it's, it's almost as if it's interconnected i think and and i think most historians agree that it is interconnected um, but um, I have asked uh, Daniel, everybody, that, uh, to to post these uh, pictures on social media so that we can in all enjoy them. So hopefully he'll do that. Thank you for writing in, Daniel. Um, Ian uh, Wakefield87, Ian Wakefield, has written in, but, Hi Chris, firstly I wanted to say thanks for such a comprehensive podcast. I was recommended the podcast by a colleague at work when I said I was working my way through the Oldest Stories podcast. I've been binging your podcast for about a month now and I'm currently listening to episode 11 of volume 3, which is one of my favourite periods in pre-modern history. I have noticed... When uh, As you have upped your production quality of the podcast over the lifetime of the podcast, there's a little quirk that has come through. When you cut segments of audio and stitch them together, there's a moment of total silence. Essentially words, hum, total silence, hum, words. It can be easily overcome by taking a moment to record 10 seconds of room tone before or after each podcast and can be used to fill these blanks. Otherwise, no complaints on the podcast quality. Everything you've done has been an improvement. Hopefully this helps. Or I may find out as I head towards more recent episodes that it's been resolved. All the best. Keep on keeping on, Ian. Thanks, Ian. It's very uh, kind of you. I don't get enough um, emails um, about the sound quality, and that might be a good thing. Um, but over the course of the podcast, I've, um, I find myself frequently tweaking sound quality and and production uh, styles and and techniques uh, because I'm spotting different things all the time that I'm sort of dissatisfied with. I think by and large the podcast sound isn't bad um but it's always a great help when people indicate um things to me and and often if you pinpoint where you've heard it I can then go back and and pinpoint it myself and sort of recreate the problem hopefully so um, thanks a lot, Ian. It's very uh, very kind of you to write in and, and point that out. Uh, Pierre C. has put, um, hope you are doing well. Giving you a shout-out from the other side of the pond. I've been enjoying your podcast for several weeks now. I listen to them while I drive and relax at night. They are extremely informative, and I like when you put your personal opinion in based upon your research. That's the best way to present things. By the way, accent is great. Pierre C. Esquire orlando florida usa thank you pierre and then uh finally we've got kurt van Schalkwijk um has put uh, hi mr hasler um i have made it to volume two i've found that i have described some t- um i found that i had subscribed some time ago but didn't get around to listening until recently What what, what was you doing what on earth was you doing? Uh, please uh, give a listen to the DIRT podcast, which is an archaeology podcast. Anyway, great podcast. I hated history in school. Schools in America appear to have this idea that history started on July the 4th, 1776. Who knew it went back so far? Thanks for filling me in on what happened before the revolution. By the way, I will let you figure out how to pronounce my last name. Uh, well, thanks for that. Thanks for the, the lack of uh, assistance there. And uh, that's uh, Kurt van schalkwijk from Andover, Massachusetts, USA. You've, I think you've got that IJ um, Dutch vowel sound that we don't have in England, uh, or we don't have a, a, an exact equivalent to in England. So so that's the one that, that's going to catch me out. But thank you very much, Kurt, for, um, for writing in from Andover, Massachusetts, USA. Um, yeah well look I love American history just as a side note to what you've put there I, I absolutely do love reading about American history it's, it's so unique and 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 so radical isn't it um, when you compare it to every other country in the world it's, um, it's, it's certainly like no other really um, but you can say that for a lot of other countries so I'm not sort of downplaying any nation's history by saying that. Um, Now let's um wrap up this week by looking at uh some reviews. Let's see who's reviewed the podcast. So, reviews. Um we've got Fan of History via Apple Podcasts, United States of America's but great podcast, wonderful history of all things human. It is great that a self-educated person can put together such a great quality production. That's a that's a very kind review, thank you. Um a real name's taken, number one. Uh, from the United States of America's but fascinating, the most comprehensive history podcast I've ever sampled. Uh, hi Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, delineate the history of the world um, with such care. I just finished listening a uh, to the European migration episode and was impressed to learn so many facts I had never heard. For example, that Alan and Indo are cognates. Um, Looking forward to dissecting and digesting this episode throughout the months. As an aside, your response to an email by someone asking you to pronounce the words Neanderthal, Neanderthal and Homo sapiens correctly was handled with such grace. Thank you. Please never stop educating us by using academically accepted pronunciations. Embarrassed North American Sarah. (laughs) what a great review what a fantastic review it took me it it took me a couple of attempts just to read the thing Um, but very good very good indeed um John, history fan via Apple Podcasts, United States of America has put a wonderful survey of world history with surprising depth. This is one of the best history podcasts I've found. Chris does an excellent job covering the big topics, events everywhere in the world, but he also gets into quite a bit of analysis and depth, much more than you'd think. Since it seems to be a common issue as an American, I did find his accent a bit difficult at first, but after a few episodes, even that small issue went away. That's that's real life, really. I mean, often when you come across a new accent, you, you do have to sort of get attuned to it. That's uh, It's quite normal just in the real world as well as in the podcasting world. So. Um, V.J. L. Abbott uh, from the United States. They're all from the United States of America this week. Come on, rest of the world. What's wrong with you? Um VJ L. Abbott um has put great podcast. Chris Hasler has created a very informative and thoughtful podcast on human history. All of it I like the consideration he gives to multiple points of view and debatable topic uh, debatable topics when covering a topic. Uh thank you. Thank you to everybody. You know, that was a lot. Uh, for me to get through this week so I did try and sort of um, steamroll through it quite quickly there's a lot of messages and a lot of reviews and I, and I can't thank you all enough and I, uh, maybe the day will come where I I can't fit all of the messages and, uh, and reviews into the end of the podcast episode but I I do hope to be able to continue to do that for as long as possible because I'm so grateful to each of you for the effort and the time that you take to... Uh, to write in and to review. It really helps the podcast to evolve and and move forward. So um, I can't express enough gratitude, really. So thank you. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up now. I'm going to let you get on with your lives for another week. Thank you for your patience. This episode did come out a little bit late. Again, as as did last week's. a few things um you know especially with this pandemic and and the way that we're the UK is currently trying to recover from the pandemic and get back to normal and um it's still in some of my time as well you know in in terms of the recovery and um I'm, sometimes real life is dictating to me uh, when and when I can and can't sort of devote time to the podcast so hopefully i, I haven't tested your patience too greatly in um, in in making you wait a few hours for the for the uh, initial publication. So thank you so much for your patience. Next week we continue this great story of the Han Dynasty. And until next week, uh, enjoy your week and don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media why not support the podcast by clicking the patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the history of the World podcast illuminati drop me a line at history of the at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode see you next time